Well, amen, Basswood. It's good to see you here this morning. I invite you to take your copy of the Bible and go to Romans chapter 11, would you? Romans 11. We are in, and will be for the next few weeks, sort of in a little bit of a parenthesis. Our ordinary and certainly our preferred pattern uh, is to do systematic exposition uh, through books of the Bible. So most of this last year has been in the book of Galatians. Uh, we've taken a couple of little excursions, a few weeks in Habakkuk, and uh, some time at Advent. The next few weeks are going to be a number of textual messages, and this will be one of those. Um, our plan is, Lord willing, uh, middle of February to resume that verse-by-verse verse working through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, one we've not done here. So we're looking forward to that in February. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 33 and then extending into chapter 12, the first two verses of chapter 12, very familiar passage of Scripture. This is obviously our last opportunity to worship together this year, and I just want to give you my big kapow up front, my hope for our time together. We are uh, in a season of the year where it would be very easy for us to fixate on ourselves to turn inward, uh, to consider our goals, our ambitions, our hopes. And I think there probably is some validity in that and some uh, wisdom in assessing our life and making determinations, course corrections, so forth. But I would love for us one last time this year to turn our focus away from self and look together to the Lord. Just sort of resist that gravitational pull toward introspection and look again together at the Lord in his glory. So as we make this turn into 2024, I hope you know there are bigger questions than what do we want out of life? Um, how are we gonna keep ourselves entertained uh, over these next months? What do we wanna do in terms of recreation? All of that. There are much bigger questions. In fact, a central question would be what does God want? What is God's desire? For me, what is his will for my life? We're in a text I think will be instructive on that. So I'm gonna invite you to keep your Bibles open, would you? Uh, and because we're gonna refer back to this as we work through this important passage of scripture. Romans chapter 11, beginning verse 33. Scripture says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you know this. When we get together, uh, when we come together on this Lord's Day, when we participate in worship, and by that I mean particularly the lifting of our voice in song, that matters enormously. That is not just preemptive or preliminary to the preaching. And we would say the preached word holds a unique place in our gathered worship. But when we sing together, that is enormously important. We often say it this way. When we worship, we are bearing public testimony to what we believe to be true about the character and attributes of God. So that is true whether you are uh, vigorous and engaged or whether you are listless, there is something that is communicated. I remember years ago, it's probably been 10 years ago, one of my daughters said of another member of the church, an older brother, she said, when I watch him worship, 
I love Jesus more. You know what that means, don't you? We are, we are testifying, we are bearing testimony to the character and attributes of God. And nothing grounds, and this is a great thing to just sort of drill home on the last Sunday of the year, nothing grounds our joy like the hope of the gospel. The good news that through the work of God's Son, our Savior, we have been reconciled to a God we have grieved through our sin, not on the basis of our merit, but despite our demerit. Horatius Bonar said, the gospel is the proclamation of free love, the revelation of the boundless charity of God. Nothing less than this will suit our world. Nothing less is so likely to touch the heart and go down into the lowest depths of depraved humanity as the assurance that the sinner has been loved, loved by God, loved with a righteous love, loved with a free love that makes no bargain as to merit or to fitness or to goodness. It is that message that we want to have high visibility anytime we get together on the Lord's day. It is the church's first message. It's what Paul described as being of first importance. And I don't know that anywhere in the Bible do we get as comprehensive treatment of this great message as the epistle to the Romans. I mean, the Romans, uh, the, uh, the gospel uh, is presented in, in its fullness, probably in its most thorough treatment in the book of Romans. And it's important as we look at this little section here that we position this section at the end of 11 chapters of gospel doctrine. Our, our text, what I just read to you, certainly the opening verses, 33 and 34 particularly, are startlingly poetic. I mean, they come out strong. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways inscrutable. Well, you know that every text requires a context. A text without a context becomes a pretext, it's therefore unusable. So uh, uh, every text requires a context, but I would say in this case, in this passage, the context is long. In fact, it's 11 chapters long. It's a long, long lead up to this explosive word of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It is responsive to a whole lot of gospel content. Years ago, we preached through the book of Romans. In fact, right at the time when the Lord brought uh, the Hudsons to us, uh, it was right during that season, and, and that was when we began to learn that he gets all the good texts and I get all the hard texts. But that was, uh, we uh, look at, I could give you just a quick summary. You know what, Paul at, at considerable length showed us our need, those first three chapters. He showed us the depth of our depravity, whether you are a well-taught insider or you are an irreligious pagan, you stand guilty before the Lord, whether you hold the law or whether you only see what is invisible in nature. Midway through chapter three, Matt came on staff and began preaching the good news of the gospel. He shows us Christ as the manifestation of the righteousness of God apart from the law. The death of Christ is our propitiation, that wrath-absorbing sacrifice. We see him as both just, his justice is not impugned, and he is the only hero in the story. He is both just and the justifier of those who believe. We saw his union with Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We saw the limitations, the preposterous limitations, the paucity, the weakness of our good works. And we recognize we are not saved by what we do, but by faith in Christ through grace, by grace through faith. And we consider justification. I mean, you see that so clearly taught, Romans 5 particularly and beyond that, that we are declared forever righteous. This is good news. That we are declared forever righteous. Judicially, the gavel comes down and you are declared free from the guilt of your sin by the only judge who matters and based on the substitutionary work of Jesus. We are saved not by works, but according to God's mercy. He takes us through that 
glorious process of change from one degree of glory to another. He is, his effectual work of sanctifying us and uh, changing us and shows us how to address sin, how to fight sin, how to make war with our flesh. And then chapters 8 and 9, there's therefore now no condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus, we see how the li- life in the Spirit works and how he helps us in our weakness he shows us the beauty and hope of providence, how that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, everything works for good. Everything advances God's permanent good for you and for me. We are shown here the great enduring love of God as it is something that will not lift, it will not abate, it will not diminish. Nothing can threaten it, not life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things coming, anything in the past, anything coming down the road, anything at all. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then without flinching and without apology, chapter 9, he just sort of lays out the doctrine of, the the pride-crushing doctrine of Election, that this whole thing depends, Romans 9, 16, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we see his mercy in sending this message to the nations. How will they hear, Romans 15, without a preacher? And how will he preach unless he is sent? And then the mercy shown, these last a couple of chapters, shown... Uh, in Gentile inclusion, which applies to most of us who would have no ethnic claim to inclusion, the people of God. A new community where people like us are grafted into this new, redefined, single people of God. I thought I could do that in five minutes. I did it in seven. Uh, that, that is a summary, sort of a jet uh, tour over this great, great theme. And all that we see today all that we will consider today sits atop those 11 and a half chapters of gospel content. So here's where we're going. Two heads to today's message, two focuses, both of them responsive to the message that we just summarized briefly. Two heads, we'll divide this section at verse 36. The first section is doxological. That's a fun word that just means voiced praise. If you're gonna preach this section, expositor's credo is you've got to use the word doxological. So uh, this, is a, this is a voiced praise. This section relates to what occupies our minds and fills our hearts about God. The second section from the last verse of chapter three or chapter 11 to the second verse of chapter 12 is submissive. It involves how we orient our lives, which I think has a lot of applications as we enter a new year. How, what, what is the trajectory of our lives to be? All this gospel content has to have an effect. So we've reached an inflection point where we have to act on this. This, is, this leads up and is responsive to the gospel summary that we've considered. So think of it as a so then section. In fact, both heads would be so-then sections, responsive sections. First, the first section, a so-then of praise. Just think of it as a compact but expansive doxology, a word of praise. That's the first we'll consider. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, some things are just meant to Call out the word oh, isn't it? I mean, we, I don't know how often you use this word oh, probably more than you realize, probably more frequently than you do. We noticed today this is our first chance to see Cooper Keeter and our first chance to see Mary Kate Nell. Uh, Sam and Morgan just took back seat to that little girl. So when she comes in and you see her, you're, uh, it's reflexive. You look up, oh, oh. There, O is a natural, reflexive response. Some years ago, my parents who are with us today took our extended family to the main coast and we walked up Cadillac Mountain, which is the highest point on the eastern seaboard. Some of you have been there. And when you're hiking up there, what is before you is just little shrubs and, and trees, not impressive rocks, and just what, what's on the trail is not a lot to 
really excites you. But when you stop and catch your breath to get a drink of water and turn around and look at what has been behind you the whole time that you are walking, you see this vast coastal landscape, the ocean and the islands, the rock formations. And there is, I think appropriately, a response of the Spirit. Oh, how we're moved by that here in just a few weeks. We'll have another wedding in this room. And I don't know if you're like me, one of the great things about standing right here is I get to see everything. I get to see uh, the groom. I get to see the bride's father. And I get to see the bride. And then I get to see you all. And it's interesting, some of you turn right around and look at the bride. And some of you keep your eyes on what's happening. If you want to see the response of that, you've seen the videos of this. You know what? That didn't have to be coached. When they step in there, there is something seizes in the heart of the groom when he sees his bride in her glory. Some things are just meant to make you say, oh. Whether you were paying attention or not, if I read the bulletin right, I think you said oh today maybe seven or eight or maybe nine or ten times in our singing. Oh, crown him all the earth. Oh, what a gospel Oh, what a peace. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I think one of the things we should hope for, even before we get into the the, the meat of this section, is for a heart that is still responsive to the sweetness of this news. You don't want to grow cold to that. You don't want this to become tired, stale, familiar news. I'll be honest, as I meditated On this section, I discerned in myself a concerning kind of familiarity with the gospel. And this should be to us sweet. We should hold it as gloriously sweet and look to the Spirit to keep this alive in our hearts. It would be tragic. It would be unfortunate to approach themes like justification and propitiation and adoption into the family of God and union with Christ in a way that is purely academic and cold and considered and in an analytical way that that we to, to murder in order to dissect it. That would be to discuss justification like you would discuss fossilization or geology or physics. I know, I'm talking to geeks. So some of you are saying, fossilization's pretty cool, Ronnie. No, I mean, I, I mean, this is to be so glorious, so sweet, so wonderful that it reaches our hearts. Your redemption is a unique wonder. And it is good for us to be cautioned against this kind of soul-starving olessness a failure to see the beauty and the glory and the sweetness, the grandeur, the personal treasure of the gospel. So knowing what we know, seeing what we see, we respond like Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Well, there are a couple of different ways of interpreting that opening sentence. The first is to understand Paul is referring to one truth. The way I just quoted it is the way I memorized it years ago, and it, and it uh, is one approach. He would say uh, the first approach would be to consider it as one truth. That is God's wisdom and knowledge. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The second is to consider more than one thing, and I think the ESV helps us here, the conjunction and helps us to look at this as riches and wisdom and knowledge. I think the context suggests this second reading is preferable. That is, his resources are extolled as deep. His wisdom is extolled as deep, and his knowledge is extolled as deep. You noticed, I know, surely you did, you noticed that vivid descriptor, deep. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I grew up swimming in Lithia Springs. And you know, some of those springs in central Florida get really, really deep. They're clear. You can see all the way to the bottom. 
But I never reached the bottom. I swam down there, but you tread water over that. See, you are, you are over a deep, deep, deep body of water. So it's almost maybe helpful for us to think of this in terms of treading water over a vast, vast, deep chasm like the Marianas Trench. That this is seven miles deep. That this, all the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul looks at the riches, that is the resources, his wealth, and says that's deep. He looks at the wisdom of God and says that's deep too. And he looks at his knowledge and says that is also deep. The way he thinks is beyond us, and all that he does and is is beyond us too. His judgments, he'll go on to say, unsearchable. His ways, inscrutable. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, how inscrutable. Everything in this 33rd verse, I think, could be applied to our whole lives. It certainly could be applied to the year we just lived. Everything in it. His riches, his supply, his resources, deep. His wisdom, all that he has done, it has not been random. It has not been chaotic. It has not been out of control. It is expressive of his wise decree. His wisdom, deep. His knowledge, also deep. His judgments, unsearchable. His ways, above scrutiny. Let's press on. Verses 34 and 35, he asks three rhetorical questions. And we could even call them kind of silly questions. Two, two from Isaiah 40, one from Job 41. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you see it there? And who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He's drawing from Old Testament uh, prophecy to make this point. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? My buddy says this way, you don't know what you don't know, right? And here he's saying, who here? Who, I mean, we might put it really plainly, who among us so comprehends that he could fully exhaust the mind of the sovereign Lord. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Not me, not you. Anybody here wise enough to make God his counselee? Who has been his counselor? And who among us has made the Lord our debtor? The obvious answer is nobody. He is our counselor. He is our provider. We are not his. So who has known the mind of the Lord? This line of thought runs counter to sort of folk theology that tries to hustle God out of blessing. So I'm gonna, I'll give you this, but then you'll, in response, kind of a hustling God out of some kind of a blessing. We are, we are, not, we are indebted to him. He is not indebted to us. Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Later in that psalm, you thought that I was altogether like you. He is in no one's debt, not yours, not mine. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? Remember, we're looking at and bracing against and drawing from all this gospel content, specifically the glories of our reconciliation redemption to the Father. How is it that God is going to take the problem of man's rebellion and ensure that he answers it in a way that does not impugn his justice so that he is just and the justifier? Can you come up with a plan like that? Can your mind devise something that great, he has both the wisdom to dream up the plan and the resources to pull it off. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are inscrutable. We saw it last week in Isaiah chapter 55. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. That is a doxological response to the glories of the gospel. Let's press further into this 
doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. You may recognize that as on the sign in the lobby of our new building. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All three Greek prepositions matter. Ek, dia, and ice. From, through, and to. All that exists is from him. Settle that in your minds. All that exists is preserved by him. And all that exists finds its end or its telos in him. He creates it all. He sustains it all. And he is heir to it all. From him and through him and for him are all things. All things. So you could just go around everything you walk past, everyone you look at, whoever's sitting in your lap or whoever's sitting next to you, you could apply that to every one of them. Created by him, made, sustained through him, and made for him. All things. If that is true of the created order, it is doubly true of the new created order. It is also from him. It is also through him. And it is also for him. And it is this consideration of the glories, the marvels of redemption that call forth this sort of explosive word of praise. Who in the world could come up with a plan like this? There is a link, an indissoluble link between what we believe to be true about God's character and his attributes and the way we praise him. What, what, what spills out of our mouth in vocal praise to him. John Stott said, there can be no doxology, again, voice praise, expressed praise, there can be no doxology without theology. It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture. So get that rhythm. Revelation, response. Revelation, response. God reveals himself to us in his word and we respond in humility and praise. The worship of God, Stott says, is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Hence, the indispensable place of Scripture in both public worship and private devotion. It is the Word of God which calls forth the worship of God. He goes on. Neither can there be theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. And our place, says Stott, is on our faces. It always leads to worship. It always presses us lower. It always lands us in awe. And I think time spent here is one way to avoid cold moralism. Lifeless, legalistic, mechanical, external compliance to a code. I think that settling this, spending time in praise, considering the glories of the gospel, I think that causes our obedience to pulse with life and gratitude. Think of it this way. Between the time that a message is heard and understood and the submissive response of obedience, during that interlude, so you hear a message preached here, Matt maybe preaches, and, or I preach, and, or maybe just in your reading, you come to something, maybe a direct word regarding love of neighbor. And then over here, a day or two later, you sacrificially serve one in your community or maybe a child or maybe a family member or a parent or uh, someone you love. What happens between hearing and comprehending the message and acting in obedience to that, I think what serves to that being 
a, a, an event that pulses with joy and gratitude. It's between that time we worship and we assess worth. We consider the beauty and the grace of the directive. When we consider love of neighbor, we remember how we've been loved by God and by others. And that, that, that reflection and that consideration informs and fuels joyful submission. Not, not heavy-handed, oppressive uh, compliance to a code. Put simply, between the directive and the response to the directive, we see the Lord in his grace and in his glory. And I would say going into this new year, if I could just kind of lean on you, I can't think of anything more important than that. I, I would look for things that inflame passion for God, that encourages and promotes delight in God, that you can see him and find his beauty present. And I would steer clear of things that diminish and cloud your view of God. We're going to see in this next section that the way we are changed is by seeing his glory, by considering him in his beauty and in his splendor read something this week I thought was fantastic. I'll share it with you. If you can imagine, this just, just, just gave me just a sense of the bigness of God, which is so principally evident in this last few verses. If you can imagine a plane, a large open plane, something so clear that you can see even a speck, something so smooth that you could see uh, just a, a, a little pebble on it. Now in the middle of this plane, Consider a shrinking our sun to the size of a beach ball. So our sun is 865,000 miles in diameter, massive. Now shrink it down proportionately to the size of a beach ball. Then step off 83 pages, paces and set down a mustard seed. So 83 paces from your beach ball. Proportionally, that's the planet Mercury, the first planet we come to in our solar system. Keep walking, another 60 steps, put down a BB. That would be the planet Venus. Continue walking, 78 more steps, put down a green pea. That's our home, that's the planet Earth, the third planet from the sun. Keep walking, another 108 paces, and put down a little pinhead, and we'll call that Mars, the next planet beyond us. Then beyond that, sprinkle some dust, because there's a belt of asteroids through that area, and then keep walking. Another 788 steps, and put down an orange, that's Jupiter. Another 934 steps, and put down a golf ball, that's Saturn. You're not done. 2,086 steps. Put down a marble for the planet Uranus. And then another 2,322 steps, and we'll make a cherry Neptune. So at this point, we are two and a half miles from our beach ball. So as the crow flies, I don't know, Beyond Fountain City, maybe North Knoxville, a long ways from where we are standing here. Now, if we maintain, and I don't, nobody knows what to do with Pluto, but Pluto's out there probably. So if, if we maintain that same scale, beach ball, seed, BB, pinhead, dust, orange, golf ball, marble, cherry, how far do you have to keep walking before you put down another beach ball? which would be our closest proximate star. I was, I was completely amazed at this. Y'all may know. 6,720 miles, not feet, miles, before you come to our nearest neighbor, Alpha Centauri, the closest star. And that's just one star in an estimated 100 billion in our Milky Way, which is our 
not-so-impressive neighborhood. And nobody even knows. Astrophysicists don't even, don't even know where to begin approximating how many galaxies there are out there. Why do I take time to do that? His wealth, deep. His wisdom, deep. His knowledge, also deep. His judgments, unsearchable. His ways, inscrutable. His mind, unfathomable. Above the need of counsel, indebted to no one. All that he has made, he made for him. He sustains through him, and it is created by him. Everything seen and unseen was made by him. The blue whale, the, the subatomic particle, made by him, sustained through him, and made for him. But let us remember that it is not the cosmos that prompted Paul's worship. It was the wonder of our redemption that caused him to say, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Colossians 1, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what in the world are we supposed to do with this? Let's keep looking. A so then, our second point, a so then of practice. If the first so then was a so then of praise. This would be a so then of practice. I'm going to suggest four emphases from the last verse of chapter 11, the first two of chapter 12. Four things. Remember your chief end. Offer yourselves to God. Renew your mind. Anticipate change. What are we supposed to do with this? What we have received, what we have seen, what we have observed, the glories of the gospel. Remember your chief end. We'll explain that. Offer yourselves to God. Renew your mind. Anticipate change. I would say technically the last phrase of chapter 11 is doxology. But today I'd like to consider it as a life-shaping principle. To him be glory forever. Amen. That, that is a summary, a very brief summary, a very compact summary of your life purpose. Your chief end, you probably taught this from the time your kids were small. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the reason you were created. To him be glory forever. It is because all things are from and through and to God that all glory must go to him alone. If he created it all, if he keeps it all, if it finds its terminus, its end, its telos in him, then he is due all glory. This is true of the created order. It's true of the new created order to suggest that our re redemption originates with our wise choice that it is from us or to believe that we are kept by our clean living, that, that it is somehow through us that we are kept. Or to conclude that we are in any way central to this work, that it is for us, is to horn our way into a place that is God's alone. To God alone be all glory. Now that's the way to live your life. I mean, going into this new, settle that in your mind. You were made for the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, said this should be the single desire of the Christian. All other wishes should be subservient and tributary to this one. The Christian may wish for prosperity in his business, but only so far as it may help him promote this, to him be glory forever. He may desire to attain more gifts and more graces, but it should only be 
that to him be all glory forever. As a Christian, you are of God and through God, then live to God. Let nothing ever set your heart beating so mightily as love to him. Let this ambition fire your soul. Be this the foundation of every enterprise upon which you enter, and this your sustaining motive whenever your zeal would grow chill. Make God your only object. Depend on this. Where self begins, sorrow begins. But if God be my supreme delight and only object, to me it's equal whether love ordained my life or death or ease or pain. What are we to do with this? I appeal to you, Paul says, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship let me unpack this briefly we'll be done he addresses them as family family I appeal to you brothers he uses the verb form of something you may a word you may be familiar with a paracleto it's the word that is used of the spirit as our helper our counselor our comforter I appeal to you. The, the, the picture is one of authoritative entreaty. I urge you, I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. The basis on which he makes his appeal are the mercies, the word is plural, the mercies of God. So what does he say? He's saying, look, consider the manifold mercies of God. And in response to that, considering all this glorious gospel content, Present yourself to God. Lay yourself before the Lord, particularly your body. Consider the mercies of God. Now we tend to use the words grace and mercy interchangeably. But it may be helpful to see the nuanced difference. Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. Mercy is when God withholds from you something you do deserve. So when you consider your sin and the consequences of your sin, when that is withheld, that is an expressive of the expression of the manifold mercies of God. So he is saying in view, brothers, listen, I urge you, I appeal to you, I authoritatively make entreaty to you that you consider the mercies of God and then offer your bodies as a living sacrifice in response to that. So I might just pause and ask parenthetically, how prominent in your thinking, how evident in your thinking are the many ways that God has related to you mercifully in the last 12 months? When you reflect back on the year, do you think first of the things you wish were different? Or do you consider all the ways that God has displayed his kindness to you in Christ? Even if this has been a hard year, for some of us it's been, this has been a hard year. I would not diminish that at all. And I would say to you, it is right to lament and grieve the sorrows. It is likewise right to consider the mercies of God. Consider how, looking back, regardless of what we've endured, Looking back, I can say to all of us, the Lord has been merciful to us. The Lord has been so kind. He has been merciful. So for a moment, and only for a moment, consider your sin. Consider its frequency and its ugliness. Only for a moment, consider maybe the specific sins, particular sins. Consider alongside that the kindness of God. And, and set before you, just think for a moment of, of the manifold mercies of God. Remember that if you have found a refuge in Christ, that sin, that particular sin, all of it completely was credited to Christ and his righteousness was credited to you and he paid for it fully on the cross. So, Absolutely, consider your sin and then consider his mercy, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That is a responsive act of praise. So it is right that we would think of our sin and then lay alongside it his mercy and considering his mercy to joyfully, readily offer up our lives as a sacrifice to him. To the Christian mind, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. It is right. Our, our responsive obedience is considering his great mercy. That would be the response of a Christian. But there is application to all of us. This passage can be applied to all of us. If you are an unbeliever, if, if you right now reject Christ's rule, or deny his existence, or don't consider him authoritative in any way. If you're an unbeliever, but here you are. A wash in mercy. You know that. The fact that you are here is a mercy. The fact that you are surrounded by all these wonderful common graces, story and humor and chocolate and strong black coffee, and all the kind gifts that you enjoy as mercies from the Lord. Even if you reject him, I can apply this passage to you. Consider the mercy of God. Consider God's mercy. Do you know that the one thing that is standing between you and the unabated wrath of God, the one thing that is standing between you and his fury is the mercy of God. So consider his mercy. And offer up your body as a sacrifice. Every inhalation, a gift. Every fragile breath, a gift. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it this way, I love this. Every time you draw breath, you suck in mercy. So consider the mercy of God. And based on that, offer up your life as a living Sacrifice. The proper response to God's mercy is not just a right profession of true things, but a life surrendered to God. Spiritual worship, we see it right here. Spiritual worship is a body surrendered to God. This week, we're probably going to think more about our bodies than we normally do. It's probably okay to do that. Uh, but here, spiritual worship takes the form of a body that has been offered up to the Lord as a living sacrifice. This is a, a, a fairly earthy statement. Your physical body, we are to offer that up to the Lord. Of course, you know a particular heresy that kind of dominated that first century would be to see our bodies as sort of an encumbrance, something to be embarrassed about, something that has no spiritual real value at all. Yet here he says, no, this is holy and it is acceptable to the Lord. Your body is not wicked. Your, you, your, your body can be inhabited by the Spirit of God. So it is uh, wholly acceptable to the Lord. And the suggestion, I think you would think, I mean, we, the way we're used to talking, and I see no scriptural basis for this, that if you want to be spiritual, well, you offer your heart to the Lord. I think it's more scriptural support for saying, no, you offer your mouth to the Lord and your hands to your Lord and the feet to the Lord and your arms to the Lord, your hands, all the, that, that is not unspiritual, that is spiritual, and it's not only spiritual, it's reasonable. So, in view of his mercies, offer up your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, for this is your spiritual act of worship. It's not only spiritual, it's reasonable. Someone quoted a Greek philosopher who said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. If I were a swan, I'd do what is proper to a swan. But in fact, I am a rational being, so I must praise God. If I am responsive, if, if, if this is an act of obedience to the Lord, the responsive impulse of one who has seen his mercy is to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. Revisiting an earlier focus from this book, Chapter 6, we offer up the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Hands, feet, mouth, shoulders, ears, eyes. At this point, every year, we probably think a lot about our bodies, the bodies we wish we had. I would encourage you today to not fail to offer up 
the body you actually do have to the Lord in worship. You say, Ronnie, you just don't, I got, I got limits. I can't speak. I don't have a strong mind. I don't, I'm not particularly strong. Remember what I was thinking about this morning. Remember what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4? He gives him a commission. Moses, go, go and let, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses said, Lord, he was being a counselor to the Lord. Uh, Lord, here's something you don't know. I'm not articulate. I'm just not very good at speaking. I'm not good. I, my, my thoughts are slow. My words are slow. And you know what God said to him? Moses, do you make your mouth? Who made your mouth? Who has made one man mute and another man speak? Another man deaf, another man seeing, another man blind. He said, no, the Lord knows your limits. Is it not I, the Lord, he said? So you don't have to sort out all the contingencies and all the caveats. I'm telling you, this passage applies to you. This passage applies to me, that we would offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice with all of its strengths and with all of its limitations. So we offer up the different parts of our bodies, not as instruments of wickedness, Romans 6, 13, but to God as instruments of righteousness, verse 16, verse 19. Our feet. Lord, is there something you can do with my feet? These hands, is there, are there ways that you could use my hands in service to the people of God and for your glory? My mouth, can you use my mouth Could I speak the gospel? Could I speak encouragement? Could I speak exhortation? Could I bring a tender word of correction? Could you use my arms to welcome and embrace and warmly receive? My ears, my how we could use our ears for his, God could use our ears for his glory in response to his kindness, offer up. Your bodies. The one plausible response is to say my life is yours. Every fragile breath, my life is yours. My body is yours. To hold loosely with open hands all that I would consider mine. My future, my reputation, my money, my time, my health, my possessions, my ambition. It is to release it all and readily surrender it to the Lord. Those of you who know ASL, American Sign Language, know that the word surrender looks just like this. That's really what we're picturing, aren't we? Just, hands off. This This is yours. My life is yours. We sing it. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. It's not unspiritual. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first part of Paul's appeal relates to the presentation of our bodies to God. The second relates to our transformation according to his will, that turning, that that transforming work of the Spirit of God. Both verb tenses are imperatives. In fact, these are the only imperatives in this section. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Both are imperatives, but both describe, the tense of the verb describes an attitude that is ongoing. So this is the way we order our lives. Not being pressed into the mold of the world. Not being conformed and crammed into externally the world system of thought, but rather being transformed by the renewing of our mind, that inside out proposition. You live like this. One paraphrase says, do not adopt the external and fleeting fashion of the world. The word, uh, the, the word schemes is in the Greek word there, the schemes of this world, but be transformed in your inmost nature. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. If you are a Christian, 
you are a nonconformist. You are to be contrary to the world's system. Remember what he told, Levitic, uh, told Moses in Leviticus? So when you go into the land, when you go into the land that I am giving you, the land of Canaan, you are not to adopt their practices. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as you, they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You are to keep my laws. That great hymn that some of us grew, grew singing up or sang growing up. Um, I don't want to be a Canaanite. Because the Canaanites just raised Cain at night. Uh, that's, that's why we have no children, uh, children's church here is that. But uh, um, resist those act, the activities of the outsiders. Jesus would say, Matthew chapter 6, 31. Do not be anxious saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? What does he say next? That's Gentile stuff. That's what the outsiders do. Earlier in the same chapter, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They like to stand in street corner. Don't heap up empty phrases. That's Gentile stuff. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let me just set that question before you. In what ways might you even now be, be being shaped by the world? It's easy at this point to focus on culture, and that's just a fun way to keep the focus off our own hearts. I might ask you, how are ways that you are being conformed to the world? Areas of money and amusement and politics and art and labor and achievement and marriage and possessions and idealized life. Is it possible that you've begun to take your cues from a culture that has defied God's rule? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, very near the end. More important than our understanding of transformation, uh, of, of being conformed to this world, is that transformation that, God, uh, that Paul urges here. That word is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's the word that was used by the gospel writers to speak of Jesus' transfiguration, to be completely changed. This call to holiness involves an inside-out transformation. The Christian life flows out of the inner man. Paul is less concerned with the externals, more concerned with the interior life, which will inevitably affect the way we order our lives. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The passage does not specify how our minds are renewed, but we can get help from a parallel passage where the same theme is discussed. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed, that same verb there, metamorphosized, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other, for this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. How, are, how is our mind renewed as we behold the glory of the Lord and by the Spirit are transformed? Where are we going to behold the glory of the Lord? In his word. We are transformed, changed incrementally as we behold the glory of God. That is why the first focus of this message really is the first focus. In my intro, I said, entering the new year, we have a larger concern than what we want out of life. We need to know what does God want? What is his will? How can we know the will of God? Only a renewed mind can test and approve and discern and appreciate and ultimately act on what is God's will for our lives. I can tell you going into a new year, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we can't know. But everything you need to know, you can know today. For as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we can discern by testing what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. How are we transformed by fixing our gaze on glory, empowered by his spirit, informed by his word. So don't let this year end or enter the next without a view of God that is so expansive that it fills your field of vision. Let us consider and marvel at the depths of the riches and his wisdom and his knowledge. 
Let us humbly acknowledge his unsearchable judgments, his inscrutable ways. Let us esteem him as altogether other, higher, wiser, richer, who needs no counsel and who owes us nothing. Let us see him as the source, sustainer, and end of all things, everything rising from him, everything kept through him, everything aimed at him. And may we orient our whole lives around our chief end, that he be received glory forever and ever and ever. Considering the vast mercy that we've been shown, let us offer up our whole selves, including these limited bodies, never allowing ourselves to be shaped by the schemes of this world, but being transformed by minds that have been renewed. It is then, and I would say only then, that we can know the will of God. And Father, we need to know your will. So we we do pray that in response to all that we have received, all this massive, this, this gospel content that has so informed us, may we in humble response to that readily, joyfully offer up our lives. Lord, would you give us grace to resist that impulse toward coercion and conformity to the world. And rather, as we fix our eyes on you, as we encounter you in your word, as by the Spirit, you affect change in our hearts. I pray that we would see and esteem and marvel at your mercy and offer up our whole lives to you. We believe that to be your will. So would you help us to see it as good and as pleasing, as acceptable and as perfect, and may you be esteemed in it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.